Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Recital Hall in the Voxman Music Building on the campus of the University of Iowa. Thank you for joining us. Our program tonight centers on the topic of this year's Provost Global Forum, Women's Health and the Environment, Going Up in Smoke. Cooking with firewood and other biofuels is one of the most urgent problems in the world today. It affects the health and well-being of those inhaling the fumes at close range, relies on increasingly scarce sources of firewood, and contributes over 20% of global black carbon emissions. The harm to individuals and the environment cannot be denied, and yet there is little awareness of the issue among the general public, and we hope tonight's conversation will help change that. My guests in this first segment are uh, H.S. Uday Kumar, known as Uday, uh, here just next to me. He's a professor in the University of Iowa College of Engineering. Thank you. Next to him is Salish Rao, president of Climate Healers. Nice to have you here. And at the far end, we have University of Iowa student Emma Griman. Thank you, Emma. So we're going to be looking at the cook stove problem through various filters tonight, health effects, policy aspects, cultural hurdles, and so on. But I'd like to start with a focus on how the use of cook stoves affects the environment. Um, to me, cook stoves that are used within the home seem at first glance to be almost inconsequential in terms of environmental impact when compared to major corporate polluters. But Uday, that's actually not true, is it? Um. It's not true uh, to the extent that uh, if you really look at what's being used to cook, uh, the energy source in the developing world, a lot of times it's just biomass, wood, and sometimes charcoal, uh, and sometimes actually add dried animal wastes. Um, and if you look at what we do here, we assume that our cooking is really clean because we are cooking with, uh, let's say, on an electric stove uh, or with natural gas, which are very clean when we are cooking with them. But if you look at what the source of those energies are, typically the electricity that comes to our uh, electric stove is coming from uh, a coal-burning power plant uh, quite often. Uh, or the natural gas that we are burning burns clean uh, while we are cooking with it. But actually in its extraction through the life cycle, there are lots and lots of emissions. So if you look at what the United States is doing now, we have a very abundant uh, natural gas economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we think that that's cleaner because, you know, it, we're not burning coal in our power plants, for example, to generate electricity. But when we are extracting the natural gas, there are lots of methane emissions. And methane is a very dangerous uh, greenhouse gas, 30 times more dangerous than carbon dioxide, right? Mm -hmm. So when you burn coal, you emit carbon dioxide. But when you extract natural gas, you are releasing a lot of methane into the air. Uh, so on the you know 100-year timescale, methane is 30 times more powerful as a greenhouse gas. So there are lots of these you know uh, nuances that we don't notice uh, when we cook uh, that relate very closely to environmental health, in particular to climate health. Mm -hmm. uh, now, also of course, when people are cooking directly with, uh, let's say, in a small home without ventilation, uh, women are usually, in, at least in the place we visit in India. And we've seen some similar situations in Ghana, for example. Women are cooking in a hut with almost no opening uh, or ventilation. Uh, and in fact, in India, uh, in this particular village, women are in fact cooking in a corner of the home, away from the doors and so on, for sociocultural reasons, for privacy and not being viewed by menfolk and so on and so forth. So they are cooking, in fact, at the 
place in the home where it is the worst place to cook in terms of indoor air pollution. Uh, so it causes a lot of accumulation of smoke inside the home. And even if you vent it with a chimney, all that smoke is in fact going outside. So it's not indoor air pollution anymore, it's outdoor air pollution. And these are large numbers of people. You know, industry does contribute uh, greatly to air pollution. But if you look at, um, you know, in India at least, the attribution of deaths to indoor air pollution is twice that of atmospheric or outdoor air pollution. In China, they're sort of comparable. Uh, so the very act of cooking actually does have a huge footprint on the planet in terms of carbon emissions and so on. And sort of the, to nuance it further, what is being emitted is not just CO2, but also black carbon or soot. And soot is taken up into the atmosphere and then through circulation and so on. It can land up on uh, ice masses. And when it does that, it darkens the ice. And darker eyes has the, a greater capacity to absorb sunlight. And because it has a greater capacity to absorb sunlight, it traps heat on the Earth. So it also uh, acts like um, you know, a heat absorber, just like greenhouse gases. So there are lots of these many, many uh, factors that go into qualifying cooking as an activity that on the large scale, because there are 7 billion people, uh, and 3 billion of them are cooking with firewood, or families are using firewood. Um, so you have a huge impact, right? Uh, mm -hmm. It's the numbers that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a double whammy, because to cook, you have to cut forests. Forests are our uh, best source of carbon sequestration. Now you're removing the ability to sequester carbon, and then you're throwing that up in the air. Mm -hmm. So there is this double whammy thing going on mm -hmm. as well. Uh, and the, what happens is the forests dry out. When the forests dry out, they become more susceptible to burning. And that releases carbon in the air as well. And a lot of the carbon is sequestrated in the soil. But if there is no forest, the ability to sequester carbon in the soil also goes away. Right? If you replace a forest with grassland, it has much, much depleted ability, uh, diminished ability to sequester carbon. Mm -hmm. So all of these factors add up when you talk about cooking. Mm -hmm. Well, so a term that people will be learning a lot about if they come to some of the next presentations these next two days in the, in the uh, Provost Global Forum, they'll be hearing about tr the traditional wood-burning cook stove and some improvements on uh, traditional wood-burning cook stoves that have been developed, and there's some effort to get them out into communities where, where people do cook like this. And... Um, I think it would be helpful to everybody here to just understand what a traditional wood-burning cook stove looks like. You've explained the placement, and that's, that's really useful, but what does this thing look like? Well, in the simplest form, it's nothing but a campfire. So, you know, that you cook on, or s'mores on, or whatever. So you place uh, three stones, rocks like that, and this is places in Africa, a lot of places we've seen this, um, and... You place three rocks, and then on top of that, you place your pot, and you put wood under it, and you cook. Uh, and there are other parts, other places where people just form this in a more permanent structure into a horseshoe shape. It might be formed with stones or brick, and then some mud is placed on it uh, to you know, take out all the holes and so on, and smoothed out, so it kind of looks like a horseshoe. And in that, you place wood, and on top of that, you place a pot. It's the most sort of intuitive way in which you can construct a sort of ad hoc stove mm -hmm. where you are, right? I mean, it's a camp, essentially a glorified camping mm -hmm. fire. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's the bulk of, you know, you can see this around the world, and you can th see it throughout history. You know, um, uh, in India, we, we were visiting uh, a museum where they showed uh, excavations from the past, you know, going back 5,000 years. And one of the things that they excavated uh, in that place was a, basically a very similar horseshoe structure, such structure, right? And so it's lasted several thousand years, and it's the same pattern worldwide. And why is it so robust? It's robust because it's the most intuitive way to put a pot on a fire. Mm -hmm. It's something to support it. Mm -hmm. So it's an extrapolation of three stones and mm -hmm. placing a pot. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's yeah. what it is. And yeah. it's remained that, and nothing has changed mm -hmm. uh, for you know, millennia. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, you know, the current compulsion to change it is not because that is not a good way to cook your food in terms of the mechanics of it. It is just a bad way to cook food in terms of its impact on the environment and on, on the health of the woman. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, it's the most natural, mm -hmm. sort of no-brainer thing to do. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. We'll, we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about some of these uh, new uh, newer models that, that might replace the traditional wood-burning cookstove. But let me move down the road to Salesh Rao. And as I mentioned, you're the president of Climate Healers. Tell mm -hmm. us a little bit about your organization. So Climate Healers has been working on climate change for the last 10 years. And the idea there is uh, we want to reverse climate change, not just hold it to, to one and a half degrees or two degrees centigrade of fever. We want to reverse it. And so we've been looking at how do we go about uh, uh, the understanding the root causes of climate change and how do we go about reversing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so what is your uh, involvement with the whole cook stove issue? <clears throat> so it began by me going out to Rajasthan in India uh, because Rajasthan happens to be a place where you see the three major problems that the UN has identified, biodiversity loss, desertification, and climate change in one spot. You can go study it in one spot. So we started working there because of that. And um, initially, it was just an intervention where we wanted to give people solar lights and claim carbon credits for all the kerosene they're not burning and use that to pay for the lights. It was a simple, sustainable business model. And within half an hour after I got to the village, my business model fell apart. Because the women said, we don't use the kerosene for lighting. We use it to start our cooking fires. So they had no need for lights. They even told me, why do you want to change the night? God gave us night so we could go to sleep. <laughs> you know, so then uh, I found out that they burn 10 kgs of wood per household per day for cooking. And so that's what they were using the kerosene to start the cooking fires. So I asked them, if I give you solar stoves, would you use them? Because you know you could do this a very similar business model with solar stoves, and so I wanted to do something that would impact, that would reverse climate change, right? So this was the idea, and so they said, "Sure, show us how to make our food, and we'll use your solar stoves. If you can make it with the sun, why wouldn't you do it?" Mm -hmm. So we designed a solar stove that would cook their food. We deployed it in uh, 2009, and six months later, not a single one was being used. Because the stove, uh, the solar stove, the way you use it, was the exact opposite of the way they cook today, in, culturally. So you have to cook in the middle of the day, the solar stove, whereas they were cooking early in the morning or late in the evening. Mm 
You have to cook outside with the solar stove. They were cooking inside. You had to cook standing up. They were cooking sitting down. Everything you can imagine was the opposite, right? So they said, this doesn't work for us. We, we, want, we don't want to use it. So that's when Uday and his team came along. You know, we were part of the Winterim program. And so as part of the Winterim program, students from Iowa come along with them, came a professor who happened to be Uday. And so we started looking at this problem from uh, an engineering standpoint first. So how do we design a solar stove that would store the energy so that they can cook early in the morning, so that we could meet all their cultural needs? Okay? Um, and that turned out to be a very difficult problem. Mm -hmm. So that's when we started looking at, so how do we intervene in their own stove, and how do we make their stove more efficient, as opposed to giving them something new? And is this something that is currently available to these uh, people? Right, yeah. So we came up with this. This was in 2015, I think, um, because we had a bunch of students from the Winterim program come and evaluate um, efficient wood stoves. So we had three different models. We had three of each model, and we went to nine different households. We gave them these stoves, and we rotated them around them. And then we did a survey. The students did a survey as to see why do they, what do they like about the stoves and what do they not like about the stoves. And as part of that, they came up with a list of seven things that were wrong with the stoves. And we looked at those seven things and we said, you know, they're right. <laughs> you know, obviously they're wrong. That's why they don't want to buy these stoves. Yeah. So, and then we looked at that, and, you know, the, that list. Every one of those things was right in their stove. Really? So we said, so clearly, you know, uh, this is why they like their stove mm -hmm. over this, these new improved stoves. So how can we make their stove more efficient? Mm -hmm. So we came up with a small grate. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it can be made with just uh, a plate of metal that you punch holes in and you bend it. So it creates an a elevated platform for the wood to be placed. And it allows airflow from below for the flame. So we tried that out. And the first household we tried it in, it reduced wood use by 60%. And it clearly reduced the smoke as well. You know? So we didn't know how much at that point. And we were shocked. So it cannot be that simple. We have been fighting on this for years. And we had the simple solution that we missed. right? So we had it tested at a cook stove testing center in India. And the results, official results were 63% reduction in wood and 89% reduction in smoke. So when I first got that result, I said, you know, we're going to have to deploy this first and try it out. So we deployed 1,000 units in four villages. And then I went back uh, about a year later and did a survey to see how many were being used and uh, what do they like and not like about it. You know? mm -hmm. And so we did that. Uh, actually, Iowa, Kaylee, Kaylee was there um, when we did the survey. So we went to these households, with 80 different households, and interviewed the women. And we found that they were being used in 71% of the households on a regular basis. And the other households, they were not using it either because they didn't come to the class. They didn't understand what it was. Or the device was a little bit too big for their stove. Uh -huh. Wow. <laughs> That, yeah, that's fantastic. When we were preparing this program, you wrote a few notes to me, and you talked about this, the toxins that are released from burning the wood. Would you right. just address that for a moment? 
So what happens is, you know, one, the reason I got so passionate about this particular problem was because uh, the women in those villages, they die about eight years younger than the men. And which is the opposite of what you would normally expect. The expectancy of women is higher than men, right? Uh, and the reason was we attributed it to the breathing the smoke. But uh, when you analyze the smoke, you discover that there are a lot of industrial effluents in that smoke. Because whatever we throw out into the atmosphere through our industrial processes, it comes down in the rain somewhere. And it's in the water. It gets absorbed by the trees. And the trees are very good filters. So they filter the water out. So they, and all the toxins, they store it in their trunks and their branches. So those branches were being cut and burned by these women. And they, had, they were breathing all these toxins in there. So that started this whole chain of me coming back and saying, OK, maybe the same thing is happening here too, right? Because if those toxins are there in the, in the vegetation in remote parts of India, they must be in vegetation everywhere, right? So the animals are eating these vegetation, and they are storing all those toxins in their fat tissues. And when we eat animal foods, which is where it gets concentrated, you're, you should be seeing a lot more concentrated uh, doses of these toxins. So, uh, so that's when we started looking at the dietary impact of diet in the Western world and how it affects health. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, you know, if we imagine that in the villages of India, they don't have any health care. They don't have any hospitals nearby. So if they get sick, they get sick, mm-hmm. right? Whereas here, we have health care. We have hospitals nearby. If you, imagine if you took all the hospitals away and you took all the pharmaceuticals away, how much sooner would we be dying? because of all the chronic diseases that we get, mm-hmm. right? So that's the effect of all those toxins. Mm-hmm. Do you still have hope that you can reduce the levels? I mean, is that still your goal? Well, the, the toxins are accumulating. Mm-hmm. They don't go away. These are known as persistent bioaccumulating toxins, PBTs. So things like dioxin. Dioxins are formed whenever chlorine reacts with hydrocarbons. So, for instance, you know, our paper is white, right? All paper is white. Even toilet paper is white. <laughs> but have you ever seen a white tree? So, wood pulp is brown. So, to turn wood pulp into white paper, you have to bleach it. So this is why we go and situate all these paper mills in poor neighborhoods, because those toxins are going out there. And they are very, I mean, dioxins are the most carcinogenic substances known to man. And they're going up in the air, and they're coming down in the rain, and they're getting into the food, and they come back to us in the foods we eat. So the richer the food you eat, the more dioxin you get. You know? So, um, because animals concentrated in their tissues, and uh, especially concentrated animal foods, like cheese, has a large dose of dioxins these days. And you cannot escape it. Well, thank you. Um, Emma, let's move down the, the line to you. And uh, You're an undergraduate student here at the University of Iowa, a junior, as I understand? Yes, I'm a biology um, honors student here. Yeah, yeah. And you recently went to India, I guess, along with Uday and yeah. some of the other professors. So my freshman year, I took the faculty's big idea course, People in the Environment, and I sort of got spoiled. It was one of my first courses um, on campus, and we had... 
anywhere from like five to seven faculty members in the room um, giving us their perspective, a holistic view of this TrueLive problem. And that set my standards pretty high for the rest of my um, education here at Iowa. It encouraged me to look at problems holistically, both in my classes and in my personal life, and also to connect with my professors, um, even in lecture settings. But after the course, I kept in touch with the faculty members. They were always really willing to help me talk about how I envisioned my future um, and give suggestions on what to engage with on campus. And they told me that they had applied for this Fulbright-Hayes grant to go to Rajasthan and do more research, learn more about the problem. And I just I thought it sounded wonderful, not only to go and see this problem firsthand, but also to um, continue to learn from the faculty and sort of see firsthand how multidisciplinary research worked. Mm -hmm. So how long were you there? We were there for about four weeks, mm -hmm. so over the winter break in between the two semesters. Mm -hmm. And what, what did you see on the ground? We, um, we were exposed to everything. <laughs> so we flew into Delhi, which was really crowded and sort of sensory, sensory overload at first. Um, and then we also went to villages in the Ravalis. And as we drove out there into the villages, I thought I was well prepared. Um, in class, through readings, in PowerPoints, in pictures, and anecdotes, I thought I knew what to expect. Of course, that was foolish. And um, being in the kitchen with your own feet on the dirt floor and smelling the smoke with your own lungs and seeing the kids running around with runny noses, it, um, it brings a proximity to the problem and sort of a, a passion for it. I'm not sure I would have been able to develop otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, you said that you, you had thoughts about the way you live here in mm -hmm. the U.S. as well. Absolutely. Um, time after time in India, we were told that these women are not solely responsible for deforestation. It's industry and mining and agriculture. And it felt extremely hypocritical to get on a plane and fly across the world spewing carbon and then travel from city to city in India drinking out of plastic water bottles <laughs> while telling these women to like, modify their cooking habits or burn less wood. Um, here in the United States, I have like a stove, an oven, a microwave, a tea kettle, a toaster, all to cook food. Um, so it really made me feel like I needed to address my own lifestyle and look at my own consumption habits. And um, that felt like the first place I should be addressing change. Mm -hmm. And uh, you told me before the program what you plan to continue to study. Absolutely. So I don't have an exact vision, but I know I want to work at the intersection of health and social justice. And this fa these faculty members have shown me that that's possible to work and not just one, but many interacting fields and sort of get at issues that really matter to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pretty nice to have students like this here at the university, huh? Our university is full of them. Yes. So fortunate yes. to be here. Yeah, yeah. So um, what are some concluding thoughts about the environmental impact of the cookstoves here? You've been studying India. We know that in many other parts of the world, these kinds of rudimentary um, cookstoves are still in use. How does this message get out to people, assuming the little, if we just take, for example, the little uh, grid that you have created, um, if that were seen to be the best way to move forward, does that imply that governments need to get involved in sending one to every home? Uh, how, how would this 
How could this be adopted more quickly? Well, um, the governments are involved. I mean, there is a cottage industry. There is passion. I mean, there are people, folks here, who drove up from Colorado, uh, you know, just because they heard of this conference on cook stoves. People have been working on this for 30, 40 years. They are the most passionate people on the planet. Um, and the governments, you know, India and China, you know, are pushing it. There are, there are UN programs. There are WHO programs. There are programs of every description and size, right? Uh, it shows that the problem is the, the very important to people. But it also shows how intractable it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's the most important thing for us as, as you know, researchers and also as learners is to understand that these are really, really complicated problems. If they were simple, they'd be solved easily. Yeah. Uh, and that it takes people from all disciplines to work together to try to solve, mm-hmm. solve the problem. It is not a technology problem. Mm-hmm. You know, there are lots of technological options. It's a social science problem. So you know, we, we, don't, we don't have a technology fix that will cure this. It is behavioral change. It's how to get people to you know, move towards new ways of cooking and living and eating and so on and so forth. And it's as difficult there as it is here. The problems here are no different than, than there. We just happen to distance ourselves from the impacts of our actions. For example, if you cook on an electric stove, you're not see, seeing the smokestack at the coal-burning power plant. Um, when we drive, we don't pay attention to our tailpipes. Uh, you know, there are all of these things, right? I mean, it's all carbon. It's all going up in the air. And it's a global exchange of carbon everywhere. I mean, the pollution in China affects us. And our pollution affects the entire world. So, you know, we have to understand that it's a complicated network of problems. It'll take all actions. But the most important actors are individuals. Mm-hmm. We can always blame governments for inaction. But unless we change, by we each of us. Uh, the key to sustainability is asking, what am I doing? Uh, you know, when I teach about sustainability, I always ask people, what are you doing to change? Uh, and this visit changed me a lot. Uh, immediately, I came back from the visit. Uh, I went vegan because I realized how everything is connected and that our consumption really matters to the environment. Uh, and Silish did. Um, and so it does influence how you conduct yourself, and I think that's the most important thing people have to get. It's us. It's not the government or some agency that's going to fix this. It's each of us working on ourselves, actually, as agents of change. Right. Right. Well, well thank you all so much for starting us off on this program tonight. I want to say thanks to Uday, Uday Kumar and uh, Silesh Rao and also Emma Griman. Thank you very much. And I hope you can stay with us for part two of this series on women's health and the environment. All World Campus programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and for International Programs, thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from the Recital Hall of the Voxman Music Building in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series called Women's Health and the Environment, Going Up in Smoke.
We'll be focusing specifically on the health effects of cooking with firewood and burning biomass in this segment. Uh, everyone near these fires, breathing in the smoke and the toxins, uh, is badly affected, but the harm falls most intensely on women and on children. Um, here are a couple of numbers to think about. 2.7 billion people in the world depend on traditional cook stoves or open fires fueled by biomass. And exposure to traditional cook stoves is the second worst health risk factor for women and children globally. And the WHO estimates that more than 4 million people die annually from indoor air pollution. Uh, we have a great group of guests in this segment. Uh, just next to me is Peter Thorne, a professor in the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Paul Greeno, professor emeritus in the University of Iowa Department of History. Nice to see you, Paul. Thank you. And at the far end, we have University of Iowa student Shanae Condon, who graduates in just a couple of weeks. So early congratulations on that. Um, Peter, I'd like to start with you. Um, you're a professor and also the head of the Department of Occupational and Environmental Health in the College of Public Health. And we heard in the first segment about smoke released through burning solid fuels. Are there particular components of the smoke that are hazardous? Indeed there are. And, you know, it's important to recognize that the adverse effects of these um, smoke and the constituents of them uh, affects health from in utero to adulthood. Um, and it, regardless of whether the fuel is animal dung or wood or, or coal dust mixed with other things, uh, crop residue, um, there is a whole host of gases, vapors, and particulates that um, affect health. And the balance of those differs somewhat from fuel to fuel, but in every case, they do produce lung diseases of various sorts and other diseases as well. Um, in terms of what we typically measure, it's typically particulate matter and carbon, carb carbon monoxide, because they're very easy to measure. And so in many, many epidemiologic studies have looked at those constituents. But in addition to that, there's um, toxic vapors um, that cause a variety of uh, effects on the lung that we can talk about in a minute. There are um, gases that are irritant gases. Within the particulate matter, there's soot, and these soot particles can carry polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are a type of hydrocarbon that is associated with various cancer outcomes. And then other constituents of the particulate matter are bioaerosols. So these come from bacteria or fungi, and they survive the smoldering temperatures of, of uh, a traditional fire, such that when inhaled, these can produce very specific interaction with the immune system and lead to inflammation and various inflammatory diseases. Wow. Um, so the women and the children, as we've already learned, tend to be most closest to these fires as food is being cooked. Yes. We know that everybody in the area is going to be affected either with indoor pollution or with the outdoor pollution because yeah. of this mm -hmm. use of smoke. Um, what are the most serious health consequences that women face? Yes. Well, if we think about um, those that survive to adulthood, um, then it's uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, cardiovascular disease, they may experience um, asthma or inflammatory lung diseases, but the diseases aren't limited to those of the lung. It also extends to um, systemic diseases because the constituents that we inhale, um, some of those are absorbed into the circulation and there are um, very um, 
specific triggers that these induce in terms of cardiac function uh, and interaction with the immune system. In, if you look at um, young children, uh, be they male or female, um, they tend to have a higher incidence of acute respiratory tract infections, particularly of the lower respiratory tract. And this is because the, the materials that we inhale um, impair the immune system's defense against these common microbial agents that then uh, establish pneumonia and, and lung infections. And also, there's a re some recent data that suggests a pretty strong link between the uh, incidence of tuberculosis and exposure to smoke, and it extends to cooking fires. Um, so those are the infectious diseases, and these often uh, kill children before the age of five. Um, those who don't suffer from an infectious disease outbreak will often have problems with asthma and wheeze and inflammatory um, diseases of the lung. Another attribute that is increasingly being recognized are some recent studies that have looked at placentas of women who have been exposed to these um, cook stove smoke um, during pregnancy and, and a comparable group of women from a similar demographic but who do not, do not have that smoke exposure and there are observable differences in the placenta and, and this translates to stillbirth rates and other um, problems of pregnancy and conception. Um, there is a, a quote that was, if, if you looked at the uh, website for this conference, uh, you may have read uh, this particular uh, sentence I'm going to read to you now. I, it's quite something. Respiratory illness caused by cooking with biomass exemplifies the slow violence that causes immense harm and death, but is not dramatic enough to grab the headlines. Is that what we're dealing with, with here? Well, I, I think that this is a problem of principally of low- and middle-income countries, mm -hmm. and this is one element in an array of issues associated with poverty, and um, you know, there's, there's certainly strife and environmental challenges, and, and women and girls spend so much of their day gathering fuel that they're often mm -hmm. not becoming educated, as, as, as are the men and boys. And so you know, there's just a whole host of problems mm -hmm. that, that are associated with uh, this group of people um, who rely on dung and, and, yeah. and crop residue and wood for their fires. Mm -hmm. you, you, you raise this issue of a differential between men and women, and I would just like to point out that in other areas I study, mosquito coil exposure, um, uh, exposure to uh, ritual incense burning, other types of indoor air pollution that people are exposed to, there is more equality in terms of mm. the, the, the bad exposures between, mm -hmm. between mm. Uh, men and women. And in many places, some of the work that we've done with uh, cook stoves and those exposures have been quite informative as to looking into the health effects associated with mosquito coil yeah. burning and, uh, and ritual incense burning. Mm. Very interesting. Thank mm. you. Um, yes. Paul, I'd like to address you for a second here. Um, uh, Paul Greeno has long been active in India and in South Asia. Um, you've worked not only doing your own research, but worked with Indian colleagues and students, with communities, and on issues related to the environment and to global health. Um, how do the health repercussions of these traditional forms of food preparation evidence themselves in the India you have worked in? Uh, well, what's very interesting, I'm a historian, right? Mm -hmm. So I get to take a longer look, yeah. and I do cultural and social. This, 
what, I mean, what Peter had to say was extremely uh, interesting because it's the biomedical specificity of what can go wrong with these uh, very serious exposures. But we're being asked to rethink what is a positive and uh, presumably from the point of view of Indians, from the women and families who live under these circumstances, a very positive uh, portion of life. It's the preparation of food. It's the gathering around uh, prepared food for a meal it, with the uh, ritual and religious uh, significance, the, the, um, the presence of kinship uh, bonds that manifest themselves in affection. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I mean, the interior of people's homes is not a site of, of, uh, of uh, disease and terror. It's not perceived to be a site of disease and terror. So I mean, this, this vision, uh, you know, if, if you look through the lens of smoke exposures, it is terrifying, this series of things that can go wrong, as you say, from infancy uh, to, uh, to old age. And, and you've brought us down to the level of particular toxic molecules. And then in your remarks, Peter, you made the jump to communicable disease. Mm -hmm. This is a, an enhancer for acquiring tuberculosis. So this suggests that the interior of people's homes on a vast scale, there's 600,000 villages in India, and at least half of them are burning these biomass using these chula stoves on a daily basis. I, I, can, I can just say as an assertion based on 40 years of going back and forth to India, people do not think that the interior of their homes are torture chambers or, <laughs> or a bioterror three scenes. You know? I mean, mm -hmm. so we're, we're asking in defining these sets of problems, we're asking uh, Indians to uh, uh, reconsider the shape, the form, and the feeling of their daily lives in the most intimate sense. So this is quite a, this is quite a challenge. This comes as a, as a somewhat shocking news. Uh, so how, how, do, how, do, how do people respond to this kind of awareness, which is provided by the engineers who want to give them new uh, 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 if not smokeless chulas, at least low smoke chulas, high, highly efficient uh, cook stoves, and so on and so forth. And we have a very good analogy in our own lives, and that is the uh, slow accumulated response to the news that smoking is dangerous to our health. When, when I was a child, I'm older than most people in this room, but when I was a child, my dad was a two-pack-a-day guy. He smoked cigarettes without the pretense of uh, filters enjoyed them. The first thing in the morning he got up, he had one. It was the last thing he did at night. My mother smoked. Uh, I smoked as a young man. Everybody smoked. No one was conscious of the extraordinary, uh, you know, from the epidemiological point of view, the extraordinary danger of, uh, of uh, smoking. And it was only gradually the hammering of public health messages and the slow awareness that the uh, the cancer and other diseases that our, our relatives, people around us, are getting that we came to realize that smoking was not a good thing. I think currently something like 12% of the U.S. Popula adult population is, is uh, smoking, and that's come down from like 70% over a period of 40 years. Mm -hmm. But that was a long, hard trek to recognize the danger of, of uh, smoking. People in India do not have this awareness on an immediate basis that cooking dinner, mom making dinner, is a dangerous, uh, threatening thing. And so I just, I just want to point that out. Uh, in Peter's iteration of all of the problems, he didn't even mention smoking, but of course people smoke in India. They smoke a lot when they can afford it. So people are smoking inside houses where food is being prepared on cook stoves burning biomass. So you get this you know, concatenation of one 
one hazard on top of another hazard on top of another hazard, but it is not perceived as being particularly dangerous. Mm -hmm. So just culturally, uh, we're, we're, we're looking through what most Indians in rural India would consider the wrong end of the lens. There's nothing wrong with what we're doing, but we're basically bringing a message of bad news to people who are less than ready to receive it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So... Well, what, what, where am I going with this? Where I'm going with this is that the, the health hazard of uh, cooking on cook stoves is in some ways the least uh, acceptable message. It's some of the other problems, the women's labor cost of mm-hmm. going five, six, ten kilometers a day to collect uh, wood at a distance. Mm-hmm. That is uh, understandable, the time invested in... Uh, in uh, 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 maintaining a fire, keeping it at a proper temperature. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there's very little control over temperature with, uh, mm-hmm. with these wood-burning stoves and so on. I mean, one can talk about other features of improved uh, cook stoves that would yeah. be a more attractive part of the message. Mm-hmm. The health message is, uh, paradoxically, the least successful uh, message to be, uh, to be delivered. Yeah. Wow. And have, have you, uh, within your own research, have you um, gotten involved in this cook stove conversation? Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, over I, those I, years I've that been, you've been there. Yeah. As, as Uday pointed out, this is uh, in Salesh, mm-hmm. this was mm-hmm. a gradually accumulating. Mm-hmm. The team has gotten larger and larger, pulling in very smart uh, students, graduate students, and undergraduates because it's just extremely complex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trying to understand what is going on. Mm-hmm. My own uh, research is in communicable disease. I'm a health historian, environmental uh, historian. Uh, but I find it extremely interesting and challenging, and we've tried, to, um, uh, we've tried to analyze this problem from various perspectives, which we've uh, picked up and put down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll just give you an example. We, uh, for a while, we thought, well, the way to analyze this problem is a question of technology transfer. So what we have is um, uh, women who are uh, habituated uh, to a certain way of cooking, and they can be, uh, given the right technology, persuaded to abandon that and take up something else. And we had some models before us, for example, the widespread adoption of uh, cell phones throughout India. Mm. I mean, very, very, very poor people manage to have cell phones. And cell phone charges are very, very low mm-hmm. in India. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. the, but I mean, it's not as if rural India, rural Indian women are resistant to uh, new technologies. They're not mm-hmm. at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, bicycles, uh, photovoltaic lamps, mm-hmm. uh, which are very acceptable. I mean, there are a number of examples. So uh, after talking that around for almost a year in our group, we decided this is the wrong track. We're not really going to make progress if we see this as a question of uh, technology adoption. Mm-hmm. So we have um, uh, moved on to the questions of the um, dynamics of the work life, uh, problems of uh, uh, income and uh, labor, uh, cultural acceptability, mm-hmm. um, uh, messaging that is coming from the uh, central and regional government mm-hmm. to the level of individual households. So it turns out to be, very, and all of those problems involve certain kinds of specialty studies more and more people in our team with more and more perspectives have been, have been drawn in. Wow, wow. So, Shanae, you have gotten involved in this as well. You're a senior this year. And what's your major? Um, I'm triple majoring in global health, gender, women's, and sexuality studies, and Spanish. Very interested in 
other yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. And so you went along to India on mm -hmm. this uh, recent uh, investigation. Uh, tell us what, what you saw and what you learned. Um, some of the most impressive things I saw were the creative and innovative solutions um, or attempts at solutions that people were coming with, especially under constrained resources. Um, it was really great to be able to talk with um, faculty members from the University of Iowa as well as local NGO employees and um, experts in development and um, people in related fields. And it was interesting to see how um, different methodologies and pedagogies came together to holistically um, examine this problem and look for solutions along with the villagers of Karech and Chitravas. Uh, you indicated to me that you wanted to stress the importance of multidisciplinary work in investigating problems like this. Definitely. Um, I don't know. I think um, in academia, there's kind of a separation of uh, different departments and different colleges. And this experience and this seminar um, in Rajasthan has been really great. And like Emma was saying, showing the intersection of um, social justice and health and how easily integrated that can be. And what a rich perspective um, multidisciplinary work and um, different pedagogies bring. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned that one of your majors is gender and women's sexuality studies. Mm -hmm. um, we had a, a little bit of, uh, of a description from Peter about some of the extreme harm that comes from this kind of, of uh, environmental mm -hmm. um, uh, experience to women, but that there are other things that, that affect men uh, perhaps equally strongly. Um, you have a particular perspective about the gendered aspect of this cookstove issue. Yeah, um, we talk a lot about reproductive labor, um, especially in the Big Ideas course, um, and how a lot of that reproductive labor is um, centered around the chula, and also how women have to perform a lot of that reproductive labor, such as um, you know, farming, going to collect wood, um, cooking, childcare, and other things that perhaps aren't domestic work as we think of it, um, but also how women are particularly affected by um, smoke inhalation and um, government developmental uh, efforts. So, yeah. yeah. What, what do you plan to do after you graduate? I'm really interested in public health. Um, I would like to go to public health school. <laughs> um, remember me, please. <laughs> but, also, okay, sure. <laughs> um, but I've also been interested in urban and regional planning lately, so, mm -hmm. and how mm -hmm. uh, public health and regional planning can intersect. Mm -hmm. Had you visited a, a country like India before? Had you had a similar sort of experience? Um, I have studied and traveled abroad before, but I have not been to... Um, a country like India before, uh, mm -hmm. whatever that may mean. Yeah. But um, it, it was great. It was, everything was a learning experience from crossing the street uh, and not getting hit uh, <laughs> to, to going into the villages and, and seeing how people live um, with their highs and lows and seeing how, you know, we have similar lives in, in some way with our consumption and, and impact on the environment. Mm -hmm. And did you feel quite welcomed by the people you were working with there in the, in the communities? Um, yeah, yeah, more or less. Uh, they were very receptive to us. Um, they were very welcoming. Um, and a lot of the NGO workers and our Hindi teacher, Vanita Ji, um, they were really great in making us feel welcome and involved. And um, they were nice to translate for us. And 
-hmm. it was a great experience to mm -hmm. see how everyone works together. Yeah. Um, so, Peter, in, in your uh, work in public health, uh, do you concentrate on a particular kind of, um, uh, a particular stratum of development? Um, are you sort of doing... Uh, I, I get involved in a lot of different aspects. I, on one hand, I have several large studies that, that look at um, risk factors for asthma in the U.S. Uh, one one major area I'm comparing Hutterite and Amish families and the children. They're agrarian societies that are founder populations, genetically very homogeneous, but they have very different exposures. So it's a natural experiment to look at causation of, of asthma. But interestingly, some of the exposures are, are bioaerosol exposures and, and relate to, uh, to um, the more um, lower and middle income country sort of uh, exposures. I mentioned earlier um, uh, mosquito coils. Yeah. I've done some, yeah. some laboratory research and chamber studies looking at uh, combustion products of burning those to try and characterize what, what hazards might be associated with that better. And then my first, uh, my first trip out of the U.S. was to rural Kenya when I was mm. a student, an, an undergraduate, and. That was a life-changing experience for me, and it's really given me a, uh, an insight on, on how we live versus how much of the world lives that I've carried throughout my career. Mm -hmm. Well, in our first segment, we all heard uh, virtually everyone talk about the importance of making changes in each of our own lives yes. in order to, to affect a greater outcome for the world. And I take it you would agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, Paul, you've retired now from active teaching here at the university, but I know you're still involved in lots of things, including this recent uh, trip to India. Um, what, what are you pursuing now? <laughs> I had a uh, six-month uh, Fulbright Award to mm -hmm. uh, do a project in environmental history. It didn't actually uh, focus on chulas uh, mm -hmm. or uh, mm -hmm. issues of pollution at all. It had to do with a a fugitive species of bird in urban areas. But if I could just back yeah. up for a moment. Yeah. I'm trained as a South Asian, as an Indian historian, which mm -hmm. means I learned Indian languages and culture and history and politics and so on, and have associated in the university with people who do that. So I'm, I'm kind of a regional specialist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and Peter's comments are very interesting because the kind of science he does, using the methods uh, and concepts he does can be done any place where the problem poses itself. So it can mm -hmm. be in Pakistan, it can be in Somalia, mm -hmm. it can be in Kenya, uh, like that. So there, there, are, there are differences when we say multidisciplinary approach to these mm -hmm. issues. Uh, it does matter to me where we are. So if we're talking about India, mm -hmm. uh, India is not just a place where there are problems of uh, cook stove inefficiencies and pollution and dangers and so on. India is a country at a particular point in its development and a particular point in its politics. And I want to bring up the politics up here very recently. India practices, it's a very, everyone knows India is a, a very large democracy like our own, and it has had a regular cycle of elections for the last uh, 70, uh, 70 years. And it is in the midst now of a large political change in which a single political party has risen to power and has become uh, uh, very authoritative in many parts of India. But when it comes time to vote in India, voting uh, uh, campaigning is very transactional. And what I mean is that politicians in particular constituencies make promises to their constituents about what they're going to deliver. And this can be very real. 
bicycles for girls to, uh, to get to school has been a, mm -hmm. in Tamil Nadu has been a, a big promise. But a particular political party said, if we are returned to power, we will provide bicycles for all school-age girls to bicycle to school so they can get there safely and so on. One of the recent transactions, and this is very important, and it is related to our topic here today, is that the, uh, in several states of India, the promise now is liquid petroleum gas. That is, canisters, gas canisters of the sort that we use for outdoor barbecuing and so on, but which are in urban areas of India are the normal way in which people cook with gas. They have these cylinders of gas. And the, the party in, in power has begun rolling out uh, at an extraordinary scale, um, uh, 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 depots with guaranteed supplies of natural gas to people who have not had natural gas and had no prospect of natural gas at any period in the past. So part of this problem that we're discussing about, it's conceivable that by the time the multidisciplinary analysis from health and women's studies and anthropology and geography and politics and so on completes its analysis, the problem will be partially solved in some regions of India simply by politics to collect votes providing clean natural gas. Of course, Uday Kumar told us a few moments ago that we, we disguise the, uh, the, uh, mm -hmm. the, the real, uh, the dirty aspect mm -hmm. of the production of a clean fuel like natural gas. But things are changing very rapidly in India. That's kind of what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. The particular state of Rajasthan where we went has not been on the receiving end of these promises for, for uh, gas cylinders to everybody who votes for a particular, for a particular party. Mm -hmm. But that's in the offing. I mean, it is conceivable, uh, uh, technically possible, to do this at enormous uh, cost. Yeah, yeah. Wow, well, what, an, what an interesting conversation. Thank you. Uh, Peter Thorne, um, Paul Greeno, and Shanae Condon. Um, we hope you can stay with us for the third part in this program. I'm Joan Kerr, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from the Recital Hall in the Boxman Music Building, and we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series. Uh, my guests are Jerry Anthony, Associate Professor in the University of Iowa School of Urban and Regional Planning. Thank you, Jerry, for being here. Uh, next to him is Madhu Sarin, a fellow in the Rights and Resources Initiative and also an associate in the Campaign for Survival and Dignity. Thank you for being here, Madhu. And Kathleen O'Reilly is at the far end. Uh, she's an associate professor at Texas A&M in the Department of Geography. Thank you, Kathleen. So, Jerry, uh, it's been an interesting program so far. We've learned so much. Um, new technologies to replace traditional wood-burning cookstoves or provide an insert or whatever have been developed over a long period of time, but they're not always being adopted as swiftly as we might, we might have imagined as they were being developed. What's the hang-up? Yeah, so we've heard from the previous panelists um, how important this, uh, this problem is. It's got significant health consequences. It's got significant environmental consequences. These consequences have been there for a very long time. Governments, nonprofit organizations, multilateral, bilateral organizations are not ignorant about these organizations. They've tried to intervene for a very, very long time, um, starting from, say, uh, 1900s and, and, and a more methodical, consistent, strong manner since the 1950s, 1960s, when many of these countries, many of the developing countries became independent. And yet, uh, with very few except, exceptions, success has been very, very, uh, there'd be very few successes and far between. Um, 
What are the hang-ups? Um, well, many. Um, first, um, a, a, a technology that is promost, prom, promised to be better has to be tangibly better. Um, and, and in many cases, we have found, uh, we have found literature um, citing, uh, by researchers that say that uh, some of the new improved cook stoves were really not that improved. They were supposed to improve, uh, let's say, combustion efficiency by so much. They were supposed to reduce fuel consumption by so much. They were supposed to reduce smoke by so much. They really haven't. Those results haven't really panned out. So that's one. Second, um, any new technology should be sturdy. It, it should, it should uh, withstand the rigors of daily cooking um, without too much of fuss, without too much of care. And that's been a challenge. Many of the technology replacements that have come along have been fragile. They needed attention, and when things got broken, they weren't easy to fix. The, house, the woman in the household or the man in the household couldn't do it. They had to take it elsewhere, or they had to just junk that uh, new innovation and wait for something else to happen. Um, then um, this technology has to be affordable. Uh, a lot of the technology and a lot of the improved cook stoves that have been uh, promoted are beyond the reach of the average person in the village. So that's, that's a huge challenge. Then the other challenge is sociocultural. As, as uh, Silesh explained, uh, with the solar cooker intervention, um, the, the, cooks, the, the, the cooking technology that they were asked, being asked to adopt through the solar cooker required them to cook in the middle of the day when they cooked um, you're used to cooking at the beginning of the day or the end of the day. They um, were asked to cook outside when they were you know, used to cooking inside. They were asked to cook standing up when they were actually used to cooking sitting inside. And then the other thing that uh, uh, in that solar cooker experiment was this. Solar cookers, when they heat, they bring up the cooking surface to about 200 or 220 degrees Fahrenheit. But for making bread, which is staple to any culture's diet, you need it about 300 degrees Fahrenheit. So if you can't make bread, then uh, you, know, you have a problem. You can't get people to transition away from that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the point of intervention of technology change has to be appropriate. It has to be affordable. It has to come with minimum shift in their existing cultural, uh, in, in existing cultures, in this case, food habits. And it has to be affordable. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's why it's been a huge change. And that's why I'm actually very excited about this Mewar uh, Giti, or the new insert that we've developed. Um, actually, I, I say we in a very, uh, you know, I shouldn't take too much credit for it. It's, it's actually Uday and his team that, uh, that has uh, developed this. It, it, it holds the promise of really transforming people's lives without requiring them to change their cooking habits much, without requiring them to change when they cook, what they cook, how they cook much. So this segment, uh, we we're hoping to focus a little bit on policy solutions, or, or mm -hmm. policy ideas, anyway. Um, I'd like to go to Madhu and Kathleen, and then come back to you, Jerry, mm -hmm. if you have some additional thoughts. Uh, so, Madhu, uh, you are from India, and you, I know, travel around the world, um, attending conferences like this and sharing thoughts and experience, but you've had a long history with proposing policies, get, helping to get legislation passed in India, and then um, wait to see if it's implemented or not. What can you tell us about possible policy solutions within India that, that you think holds some promise? See, as far as <clears throat> cook stoves are concerned, I worked for seven full years, more or less, on with village women, trying to, in fact, joining their own effort in improving what they had, you know, and responding to their own priorities. Based on that, you know, in fact, what emerged, what we were able to evolve, I mean, uh, you know, 
in relation to what's been said before, what I discovered was that actually it is not just a single U-shaped stove, but there's a huge variety of traditional stoves used in different parts of the country. From three-hold cooking stoves in the colder hill areas to two-hold ones to... And over the years, women have been making efforts to improve themselves, you know. So what, what got me involved was finding a woman herself trying to get rid of smoke from her kitchen. So she was trying to do it by making a hole in the wall. And I said, look, it's not going to go out from there. If you're keen, let's work together because we have to send it up. And so that's how it all started. And eventually we developed a methodology of training local village women who would be available, you know, for both building and disseminating the stove, because we recognize it has to be a skilled, uh, you know, intervention. And also to, con in fact, convert it into a women-to-women -women transfer of technology, right? It was really working very, very well. I mean, I'm, I'm not a technical person, but certainly in terms of perceptions, um, the benefits which the women, uh, you know, reported were phenomenal. Smoke was certainly going up through the chimney. Houses were clean. Uh, women had to spend much less time on, you know, mud washing or cleaning their walls. Utensils didn't get dirty. To the same extent, the woman was protected from heat while uh, cooking. Uh, so it was, you know, her personal comfort, reduction in her labor, uh, smoke removal they perceived as one of the biggest problems. And as I said, you know, the starting point was that. It is true, this was, you know, a long time ago. And at that time, everyone was more worried about protecting forests from uh, firewood ex extraction, uh, not so much about indoor air pollution. But definitely there was a very strong perception that it helps. You know, going out, yes, maybe, you know, you move it out. But in more dispersed, scattered settlements, I think it doesn't make that much of a difference. At least it's going out of the enclosed space. And especially in the hilly, mountainous regions where, you know, everything is shut because of the cold. Mm -hmm. And the smoke going out really makes a huge difference uh, to this... So based on that, I think in the, but I think the, the problems encountered at the policy level are that our system could work only where, you know, there was some local support structure to select women interested in taking this up as a vocation and to initiate, install, you know, get this, uh, get these stoves adopted. I mean, these were, these were not new stoves. The, these did not change any cooking practices. In fact, they were adapted to their routine. The only thing is that these, these modified the traditional stove to get the smoke out with the help of a chimney and, uh, you know, some baffles, etc., to improve heat transfer. The big, big, big problem is that 
for each region. I'm just thinking of a country like India. I worked only in seven Indian states out of, we have, I think, 29 or 30. But even in those seven, there was so much diversity of cooking fuels. It's not, I mean, I would like to emphasize what I found is that in many areas, no fuel wood is used because there are no forests nearby, you know. So people are using uh, rice husk, straw, agricultural residue, weeds, uh, you know, whatever they can lay their hands on. And in fact, fuel wood is a luxury. And, uh, you know, for those who live, for example, in the mountainous areas where there are forests, they can go and get it or in the tribal forested belt. But, you know, you take states like Punjab, Haryana, there are no forests left. So it doesn't say forests. <laughs> but those fuels make the challenge of designing the stoves and adapting it for local conditions a, a huge challenge. And unless you have that capability, you know, at the local level, it's not going to work. And what I... My own experience with the government program, the government of India in the early 80s initiated a massive cook stove in, uh, you know, improvement program. And of course, you know, they adopted our methodology of training village women, 10-day training programs, this, that, but they didn't implement. They didn't think of training trainers. They worked out huge targets, you know, and suddenly the countryside was littered with poorly built stoves which didn't perform. They in fact re resulted in our stoves getting abandoned because they were, these stoves were being provided free. And instead of women, the men took over because they were interested in the free, you know, chimneys being uh, distributed because they could use them for irrigation or whatever. So it was, it was ridiculous, you know. So I think at the policy level, either we have to develop an effective, you know, methodology for adapting for the very specific conditions in all the diverse areas, mm -hmm. which, you know, by the time I actually stopped working on stoves, I was saying, wow, this is more complicated than designing a nuclear program. <laughs> uh, or if you ask the women and if they have the choice, then they would any day opt for a non-biomass stove. <laughs> That's my feeling. Because, you know, the, the ease of lighting a fire, you know, with a gas stove, you just go and, and it's on. With a biomass thing, you have to, you know, blow and... I mean, a lot of the... I've seen in the last couple of decades, there's been a lot more effort on technical inputs to improve the stoves. But each one of them either requires extra effort in the kind of fuel to be used, the pellets to be produced, or smaller things to be... And the women just don't have the time. They're so overworked. So... I don't really know what the solution is in the longer term. It's, it's not an easy, yeah. easy job. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, let's throw it to you, Kathleen. Maybe you'll have some policy solutions we can walk away with tonight. But um, 
what we've been talking about really sort of leads me to, to sort of a bigger question, the division of labor between men and women and the way, you know, societies are structured in India, in the United States, South America, everywhere. Um, obviously, these, these kinds of patterns we all operate by in most cases have been developing over the centuries and are adopted for reasons that make sense for those various societies. Um, could you just give us a, a, a sort of an overarching view of what gender means uh, in the division of labor in India? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the key issues here about um, uptakes of, uptake of new technologies, whether it's uh, improved tulas or sanitation, is to recognize that, uh, that women are subordinate to men, uh, that gender is a relationship of unequal power between men and women, and it is everyday institutions and practices that keeps that going. Um, and that includes the, the practice of women cooking, women fetching the wood to do the cooking, women needing to be at home to cook at any time uh, a male fem- family member might need her to. So the, I would like to see us take a more critical approach to cook stoves by taking a step back and thinking, first and foremost, that cooking is not necessarily women's jobs. So they are impacted by uh, the negative health effects, um, in part because they are not choosing to do that work. Uh, And they may not be choosing whether or not their children are impacted by cook stoves or or not. And that that is a product of inequalities between men and women. And a gendered division of labor in India that means that Women take care of all household work and caregiving, um, as Sinead was saying, uh, socially reproductive labor. The, the burden then is placed there, and it's important to realize that there are social changes that are going to need to happen in order for new technologies to be taken up. Mm-hmm. And are there, are there women men working on these issues within Indian communities who see this uh, division of labor between the genders as something that needs to be addressed. I mean, is, this, is there, an, is there a, uh, an uprising for change that's happened? No, there is not an <laughs> uprising for change that has happened. Uh, because, you know, gender as a power relationship is understood as a, uh, as a zero-sum game. So if if men should give up some of their power, then you know, it's, it's gone forever. If some is given to women, then, then it's simply gone. But there, there are approaches called strengths-based approaches in which men and women are encouraged to talk about their different roles in their communities and their different roles in the household and to discuss amongst themselves where they think they do the best work and how some gender roles might change because the gender attachment to that work is not as strong as as other work. So it becomes uh, a working together on making gendered relations more equal by giving both sides, if you will, uh, a chance to talk about what they think uh, they do best. Mm -hmm. Do those kinds of conversations tend to happen uh, women and men all in the same room sharing, sharing their thoughts? Or do the women get together and talk about what's working, what's not working? The men have their own conversations and somewhere they, they meet to 
discuss? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, um, men, men discuss and women gossip. That mm-hmm. is, uh, you hear that a million times. Um, so I would, I would say women do discuss. Uh, and, and they are aware of their position inside their households and their communities. Uh, I think men discuss far less their position of power. They take it for granted uh, that women are doing their household work, that socially reproductive labor. In parts of India, I think it would be possible to have men and women together having that conversation. I think in other parts of India, it would take a great deal to, to bring such a conversation about. It would, and in either case, it would take a very skilled negotiator. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Well, I think we've been talking mostly about people in smaller vill- villages. We haven't really talked too much about um, city life, some of the huge, huge cities in, uh, in India. Is the social dynamic at all different, would you say, in uh, a place like Delhi as compared to the, the village level related to gender? Well, uh, I think there are similarities, but there are differences as well, partly because women in cities have greater education. They have more access to economic... Uh, they're probably more economic de- uh, independent, mm-hmm. uh, and so therefore they have a greater voice. Um, so big cities have them, but also rural areas in progressive states. Uh, in some states, there's been uh, in India, there's been a major move for women's empowerment, and women have started lots of small businesses, and, and these small businesses don't bring them much revenue, but they bring some revenue to the household. And as soon as they bring some revenue to the household, women have a voice. Suddenly, they're not the same as a, as a vessel or, a, or, or an animal. They, they, now, they, they have a role in uh, uh, decision-making within the household. Mm-hmm. So, so it makes a big difference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, coming back to the policy issues, um, you know, there are a couple of things that um, we, I think we need to consider in any kind of uh, policy discussion. And the first, first thing that we need to consider is this. Often, we, policymakers, or people from another country go to a developing country and look at women cooking with cook stoves or doing something else and say, you have a problem, and here's how to fix it, and we know how to fix it. That's, we are defining the problem for them. We need to ask them, is this a problem for you? And when you ask them, you get different answers often. For example, this year when we went on the Fulbright Hayes trip um, to Rajasthan, India, uh, we went to about 40 households, and in many of the households, one of the first questions we asked was, suppose we gave you, the household, uh, 1,000 rupees, uh, which is equivalent of about three or four days' wages. Uh, what would you spend it on to improve your quality of life? And we all wanted to hear, cook stoves. <laughs> and none of them said, cook stoves. Um, and here we are, trying to get them to change their um, uh, you know, uh, quality of life, asking them to improve their cook stoves, and cook stoves not, did not feature on any of them. Yeah. So it was more, um, if it wasn't, a, for many of them it was a cell phone. Uh-huh. It wasn't a cell phone, it was clean drinking water. Mm-hmm. And then cook stoves came mm-hmm. after that. Mm-hmm. So, so, so that's one yeah. in policy. The other thing in policy intervention is, you know, the case for policy intervention in a non-communist economy, the theoretic case really comes from market failure. Why has the market failed? If this is such a dire need, why hasn't the market provided it? Right? And so we need to think about that as well. Is it an information problem? It's a production problem? Is it a supply problem? Is it, uh, you know, there, there are those things we have to think about. Uh, and so 
till we resolve those issues, till we involve the community in defining the problem and, and take the community's input in providing, in creating a solution for the problem or thinking of op options for the problem, any intervention would be very, very short-lived. It won't be really sustainable. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, Jerry, before we end, uh, you're one of the organizers mm -hmm. of the symposium, uh, this uh, Provost Global Forum, which is mm -hmm. happening uh, today and the next two days. Um, there's a wide range of topics that will be discussed, all kind of related to this cook stove issue. Can you give people who are hearing this program some idea of what the goals are for this uh, symposium? Well, firstly, we want people to understand um, on campus and in the community and people that are viewing um, that um, this cookstove problem is a major, major global problem. It is a problem that affects a whole bunch of people. Lots of women are losing their lives from the simple act of cooking a meal for their family. That's huge. They're not smoking. They're not doing anything you know, you know, really bad. They're just cooking for their families, and they're dying. The, uh, and there are larger uh, regional and national and global consequences from uh, the deforestation that happens and the impacts on uh, global carbon accumulation. And so we just can't ignore this thing because it's happening in, say, China or India or Kenya. It's not going to affect us. It's going to affect us. It is affecting us because it's having this huge impact on global climate change. Mm -hmm. Second, um, we want, within the forum, um, we, we've brought uh, researchers and practitioners, uh, people who are getting into the field now, people who have been in the field for 40, 50 years and, doing, uh, and done a lot of research. Mm -hmm. uh, so we want those conversations to happen. Now, we want that cross-pollination of ideas from the, practice, uh, from, from the practice side and from the lab side, from the technology side, from the social side. We want that to happen. And through this conversation, we want uh, insights on how to proceed, insights on how to bring about transformative change in a manner that is sustainable, in a manner that is appreciated by the intended beneficiary group, in a manner that the intended beneficiary group will adopt this thing without being, without the solution, whatever that is, being uh, shoved down their throats, right? For example, all these women in all these places, uh, well, all these families in these rural areas, almost all of them have a cell phone, which costs $40 to $50. The, the equipment um, costs $40 to $50. And um, a cook stove can be done for much cheaper than that. And the insert that we've come up with costs less than a dollar. So why aren't they adopting this insert, which costs less than a dollar, and could make significant quality of life improvements um, not being taken up? So we want solutions. We want some insights on how to go about that. So that's what it is. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you all for being with us tonight. Kathleen O'Reilly, Madhu and Jerry Anthony, all of our earlier guests. Uh, I wish you well with the forum. I know it'll be terrific. Um, this is uh, World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa, and we thank you all for joining us both here in the room and for watching on uh, uh, video or listening to the audio recordings. This is the last World Canvas for this season. We'll start up again in September, and I hope you can join us for some of those programs. Uh, in case you are interested in listening to this program again, you can find them at international.uiowa.edu on the Public Radio Exchange, YouTube, and iTunes as well. So I'm Joan Kerr. Thanks for being with us, and we'll see you in the fall.